I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. And so we are uh, looking at Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And uh, once again, as we think about those categories, it takes a little bit of undoing to think about Christ as a king because our word association with uh, people in politics is more of a public servant, right? Today, people that are ruling countries in most of the world are known as public servants, and they are therefore answerable to those that elected them. They can even be removed from office uh, by those very citizens. In, in our country today, we curb absolute power by having checks and balances, right? But in order to grasp what the Bible says about a king, we have to put away our modern democratic assumptions. In the ancient world, and maybe even parts of the world today, there are those that are absolutely sovereign. They not only define the law, they have the power to enforce it. We might just be able to say, they actually rule. They have the guts to do it. They have the rights to do it. They say what goes and it goes. But we're more familiar with Lord Acton's famous observation about that kind of power. He says this, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? In the Revolutionary War, there was a common sign that hung in taverns. It said this, we serve no sovereigns here. I'm sure you could probably find that in Boston today still in some tavern, Perhaps you can even get it for your kitchen. We serve no sovereigns here, right? But what is it really saying? It is saying, hey, England, we don't have kings. In your face, we have presidents. We elect them, right? That, that's kind of the feeling behind it. A little bit further on in history is the French Revolution. The most articulate voices were looking forward to a time when, and here's their quote, when the last king would be strangled by the entrails of the last priest. Kingship is just repugnant throughout history. Nobody wants a king. Our context as sinners, our condition as people, generally speaking, is we hate the king. It actually goes all the way back to the beginning of mankind, right? The very first temptation turned on this point. It really wasn't a matter of eating the wrong fruit, as if it was apples or pears or something, right? What did Satan come to Eve, the tempter, saying? God knows if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. In other words, the very first temptation was to overthrow the authority of God in your life so that you could establish what is right, what is wrong. I'll be creator. I'll be God. I'll do it my way. Isn't the impulse of every single human heart? You tell a kid to put down their phone. You tell a young adult who's living in your house still, mom and dad, that they need to be home at a certain time still. Have a senior saint have to leave their own house and move into the Richard Brown house with rules that aren't their own. And you will see the impulse from one day old to 90 years old at the Richard Brown house is, I want to do it my way. 
I want to decide. Today, it goes into all kinds of issues. I alone have the right to decide what to do with my body. I alone have the right to decide what to do with my sexuality, what to do with my talent, how to spend my money, how to use my time. I and I alone. So friends, family, whether we like it or not, we need to be reminded what the Bible teaches us from cover to cover. You are a created being. We are derivative beings. You know what that means? Think about it like this. We have some engineers in here, and thanks to Pastor Pat's help, I think I found a New England invention that will fit. Okay? Let's say, as an engineer, all you do it yourself or is at home, that you invented an automatic ice scraper. Some of you would say, I did. I, I got a garage. Okay? <laughs> That's how you invent an automatic ice scraper. Per, okay, maybe you invented an automatic wood stacker. Some of you would say, I did. I have a couple kids. that <laughs> automatically stacks wood. Okay, but, but besides the kids and besides the garage, you actually invented these things. Okay, you made it, but you didn't get it patented. You made a song, musicians. You didn't get it copyrighted. And somebody takes it, sells it, and make millions with it. What would you say? I have moral rights over that. That automatic wood stacker wouldn't exist if it wasn't for me. It is mine. I have moral rights over this. So here's the connection. Friends, family, if that's true for copyrights and patents, do you not realize that you are creatures made in the very image of God? What do you have that your creator God did not generate in you? What do you possess that your creator God did not produce in you? What talent, what life, what breath can you say, I have the right to decide to do what I want with that. God is the great patent, the great copyright owner in heaven who says, the reason why I am your king is because first and foremost, I'm your creator. Which means this, sin is now not just some little, oops, I ate the wrong fruit. Sin is now a horrible betrayal. Sin is now a horrible rebellion. It's anarchy. It's, it's, it's high treason. And here's how desperately wicked the human heart is. Not only do we hate the true king, we will go ahead and replace him with a king of our own choosing. That's what brings us to our section of scripture, right? What's the backstory to David? The backstory to David's covenant that Jason read for us is found that there is prophecies long ago that there would be one king in particular who would have a global reign for God's people. Turn over in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49 is page 42 in that Red Pew Bible. A couple of weeks ago, we encouraged you that if turning Bible pages isn't your thing, this is like going to the gym. One of the people here said, Josh, thanks for the light stretching the past two Sundays, okay? But it might feel like heavy lifting, okay? What I want to challenge you to do is if you normally flip pages and you only can make it to two or three, try to get to four or five. Try to do a couple extra reps. You'll get stronger. Here we are. We'll give you the page numbers. If you're not comfortable using it, it's all right. We want to teach you how to do it. Large numbers of the chapter, small numbers of the verses. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Predicted long ago, 
Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And here's our promise. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah was one of the tribes of Israel, and 1,000 years before David, it is prophesied that a king would come from that tribe. Now turn your Bibles over to Deuteronomy 17, page 160. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you're going to the right. Deuteronomy 17. Remember that just our very first sermon in this series was Christ's prophet based upon Deuteronomy 18. So we saw how close that is. Deuteronomy 17 is to 18. That proximity is no accident. Here's what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. We're going to read through verse 20. This is Moses' words about when a king will come. Israel will have a king. They just don't have one right now. Verse 14, when you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom, notice this, the limitations, the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers that you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or, the, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and the statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is so different than the nations around them. Israel is eventually going to lust after the other nations and want to be like them. We want a king just like them. But God says, no, this king is not going to be like them. He is not going to be a God king. This king is only going to have power because it's derived from me. And we put limitations on a king. There were no limitations on ancient kings back then. But this king can't have many horses, can't have much money, can't have many wives. Instead, he is to write out by hand his own copy of the law. That is to govern him. That's the kind of king that God would allow, consecrate, and establish. There are theological limitations on Israel's king. And so in time, Israel did demand a king. Unfortunately, they did it for the wrong motives. Keep going to the right in your Bible, 1 Samuel. You're going to pass Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. We'll come to 1 Samuel 8. This is where Israel demands a king. We're looking at 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 5. Again, this is the context. 
of what sets up the stage for God's covenant with David. 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 5. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were both judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside uh, after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations, right? We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. Samuel does not want to give in. He doesn't want to relent. It does not please Samuel. And here we have his response, verses 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. What's God saying? Samuel, they aren't rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They aren't supplanting you. They're, they're supplanting me. They aren't you know, not listening to your wisdom. They are rejecting my desires and my instructions. They want a king, not God to be over them. They want a king that is anybody instead of God. They are so stubborn that God even shows them, if you keep reading that passage, all the things that will happen. He's going to take your best crops. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. And Israel is just resolute and says, nope, we still want a king like the other nations. And God says, great, if you want a king like the other nations, go ahead, but you'll be sorry. And God gives them a king that they deserve, Saul. Right? That's who they get. And Saul starts off, well, but he fails very quickly. And as far as how old that story is, it really is relevant to our everyday life. It's a story as old as time because the Bible is teaching us from cover to cover this. All of us will find a king. All of us will find a white horse. All of us will find a savior. You have to. It's actually like in our blood. Some of us believe if that lover would just come and swipe me off my feet and brisk me away romantically, all would be well. Others of us, about this time of the year, believe that if a Democrat got in the White House, others of us believe if a Republican got in the White House, then our country would be great again. And we look for a king. We look for a white knight because we realize the Bible says we all need a king. Here's the thing, though. If you don't find the real king, you are going to create a false one. And that false one will poison your life. Right? If you don't find the true king, our hearts have to make a savior. Our hearts have to find something that will be our Lord. Even those of us that are a little bit independent and perhaps even a little bit spiteful, that say, I don't want anyone to be my Lord. I don't want anyone to be my boss. I am my own boss. I am my own Lord. I am completely independent. Have you ever noticed that you're even controlled by, therefore, your own independence? 
those of you that have to prove to your family all the time that you don't do things because that's what your family wants you to do, have you not realized that you're actually controlled by your own independence? It would be good if you got along with your family. But because you say, I am my own boss, you're actually controlled by your own independence and you're unable to be free to do what the right thing to do is in the situation. So if you don't have a real king, you'll find a false king and it will poison your life. And so if you're our guest and you're not a Christian, the message of Christianity is stop choosing the wrong king that's going to tyrannize your life. Find the true king that is perfect and good and wise, that orders your life according to things that actually match with creation because he's your creator God. Choose him. Be ruled by him. He's the rightful king. In order to demonstrate that, God raises up another king after Saul. His name is David. He's a man after God's own heart. He's a little bit more complex than just that one sentence. If you want to know more, John Gorham and I are teaching a Sunday school class next semester in January on David. But David is eventually going to be the king that all the other kings in the Old Testament are compared to, right? God is basically going from Saul, you're going to be sorry, to David, who is supposed to be the one that this is what that true king is going to be like. That brings us to our third point this morning, the covenant. The covenant that he makes with David that God promises a true, eternal, and perfect king. Turn over to that passage that Jason read, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1, we have David, and he is dreaming about what he can do for the Lord. 2 Samuel 7, 1, David wants to build a house or a temple for God. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you, right? And so what we see here is that David wants to build God a house, a literal house, okay? But God is going to come to David and say, I'm going to make you a house. And it's a word play. We know that the word house can be referred to an actual building, or a house can be like a dynasty, the house of Windsor. Those of you that watch uh, Downton Abbey, the house of, help me out, the, the, the Crawleys. That was a little trivia question. Good, you guys are thinking, all right? So th th that, that would be a house, a dynasty that, that would live on, not the actual mansion in the TV show. And so God says, I'm going to make you, David, a house, a dynasty. Here's our point. God didn't need David to do anything for him. David needed God's promise. David needed God's covenant. What does that mean for you? It's true for us here as well on Sundays. Don't think that we come to church, that we serve in roles to help God out. Right? We are not doing God any favors. We are not helping God's cause and one of our elders, Tim Brown, would just love for me to say this. We are not building God's kingdom. God does the work, right? He is utterly self-sufficient, which means that there's a good cause for us, friends, to rest and rejoice that the victory's been won. 
God wants us not to glory in what we can do for God. He wants us to glory in what he's done for us. God does not want to share his glory with anyone else. So he makes that clear to David. You're going to build me a house to dwell in? No. Look at verses 8 through 9. 2 Samuel 7, 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. What's he saying there? Hey, David, I know you've been wanting to do a lot for me, but let's not forget who's done a lot for who. I'm going to make your name great. That should make some bells go off in our head. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Your name's going to be great. Now he's coming to Dave and he's saying, your name's going to be great. God enters into a covenant with David and makes promises concerning all of his descendants that they will be on the throne, that there will be a Davidic line that will one day have a king that will rule forever. Solomon is the next king. He fulfills part of this promise. He actually does build God a house, a temple. You can read through 1 Kings 7 and 8 this afternoon. And if David is described as the ideal king, Solomon's reign is kind of the ideal reign. There's peace, there's security. But here's something that we notice really quickly. At crucial moments, both David and Solomon fall. David abuses his military power, loses the trust of his men and his subjects. Solomon plays the fool and marries, even though he's the wisest man all the earth, marries. 700, 800 women, and the absurdity of idolatry. After all that God has done in him, visibly, he worships idols. So at this point in the story, all of our hearts are kind of sick because David, the one that everyone's compared to, Solomon, the best reign that we've ever had, they fall short. They're not the courageous conqueror we need. They're not the just judge that we need. Who? When? And it makes all of us know that as long as there is a sinner on the throne, we'll never be completely secure. And so kings totter along through the rest of 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and yet somehow this kingdom will last forever. Even though there's times in the storyline when you're wondering, are they wiped out for good now? I think the Old Testament ends with one of the last kings getting taken out of prison. What's going to happen? Somehow, despite all these flawed kings, there's going to be one who will rule forever. Look at verse 16. 2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, centuries later, the prophets are still waiting. So turn over to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. You should see Isaiah. He's a big guy. 66 chapters or so, right? After you see Isaiah, get to Jeremiah 23. That's page 650 in your pew Bible. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord 
is our righteousness. A righteous one coming from the line of Jesse, from the line of David. Turn back now to the left, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, 1 through 8, a beautiful picture of the messianic reign. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of who? Jesse, there's that David, Davidic line, and a branch from his roots, and it shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, the faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right? Beautiful picture of what it will be like when Christ reigns, to reign forever. This king will have to be so identified with God that he actually can be called God. Flip back to Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, a great Christmas passage. Who is this king? Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, identifies this king as someone who can call himself God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So who is this forever king? Who is the one that will rule over the nations? Who will set up this millennial kingdom? Now let's flip all the way to the New Testament to get our answer that Christ is the climax. Christ is the true king. Luke chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke. That's page 855. Luke 1, verse 26. And we need to understand how quickly Christ the King comes on the scene. This is Gabriel speaking to Mary. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city, Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, <clears throat> of the house of David, by the way. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Right? But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
friends before Christ is even born. When he is, before he's even conceived, he is identified not as who will be king, but who is king. Right here, right? I mean, that's right off the bat in the New Testament. That's kind of before he's conceived. Go back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Have you ever noticed how the New Testament begins? New Testament, first book in the Bible, first book in the New Testament, first chapter, first verse. I wonder if there's a theme that the New Testament writers want you to pick up. Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's wanting you to connect the dots of who is this Jesus. He is this king. Christ is the climax of all of the prophecies concerning an eternal king. But it's not just the New Testament writers. We have magi that come from the east. Just skip over a page to Matthew 2. Magi come from the east, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Here we have men that have somehow seen stars, traveled to the right location, and ask Herod. I noticed that, right? Someone who knows he is not the king, someone who believes he is the king of the Jews, knows that this is not him. Because look at what Herod does. Herod begins to assemble all of his people. He gets the chief priests and the scribes, verse 4, and he asks them where the Christ was to be born. Herod doesn't think he's the king. He knows he's not the king. He knows that his rule will one day end, but he knows where to find out. And so verse 5, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we have so far that Gabriel promised it to Mary. We have the Magi in the east. And if you flip over to Mark chapter 1, Christ's very first words recorded in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And this is what he says, Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, there is an already and a not yet aspect to the kingdom, but the most astounding part is at this point that it is already beginning. After so many centuries of yearning, now it is bursting onto the scenes. Flip over to Luke chapter 4. How do we know it's bursting onto the scenes? Christ comes and he goes into the temple, and his very first sermon there, he opens up the scroll and he reads it. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, sounds a lot like Isaiah chapter 11. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom of God has begun. Today it is fulfilled. It is now. 
By the time we get to his crucifixion and his trial, these issues are unavoidable. I won't make a turn there, but in John 18 and 19, we have Pilate that comes before Jesus and says, Are you a king? And Jesus says, Good question, Pilate. I mean, did you make that up or somebody else tell you to say that? Do you recognize who a king is? And then eventually they crucify him. And in John 19, they put above his head, Jesus, the king of the Jews. The most astounding reality is that our eternal king would rule us and would rule us from a cross. Right? This was not done to him. His life was not taken from him. As a king, he laid down his life for his sheep. He's not just crucified as king. We know that he is resurrected as king because the last enemy to be defeated is death itself, 1 Corinthians tells us. And so he's vindicated with his resurrection. In Matthew 28, before we say, go and make disciples, he begins and says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. I'm king. I'm vindicated. Now go and make disciples of all nations. And one day, his rule will be acknowledged universally. Look over in your Bibles to finish the story in Revelation 11. Revelation 11, verse 15. <coughs> Revelation 11, 15, that's page, nine, uh, that's page 1034. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Right? So we have a true king, a king that is above all kings, a king that is behind all kings. I guess the million-dollar question is, how do you treat this king? How do you treat this king? A lot of us have believed in Jesus in a general way but maybe we're not treating him as king. To treat him as king, you have to do two things. Here's our application. First is to receive the king. We've been talking about Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And in Matthew 12, verses 41 through 42, Christ has a very dramatic statement. He says that a greater than Jonah is here. Well, what is that? A greater prophet. I'm a better prophet. A greater than Solomon is here. What does that mean? I'm a greater priest, or I'm a greater king. We learned last week from Hebrews that Christ is a greater Aaron. He's the ultimate priest. It's quite a claim to be prophet, priest, and king, and to be better than Jonah, Aaron, and Solomon. How should that impact you and me, that Christ is the ultimate king? If you're here as a non-Christian, we're glad you're here, but Christ wants to force the issue of his being king on you to melt your heart. But you have to realize that there is no in-between. Christ doesn't just slip into Jerusalem and accidentally die. He doesn't slip out. He sets his face towards Jerusalem. He forces Pilate to deal with it. He forces his people to deal with who he is. And the cross of Christ can be a stumbling block. It's across the crossroads of humanity. It's right there, this big rock. You either build your life on it or you're crushed by it. And Christ is there in the Gospels. And he's saying to all of us today, either crown me or crucify me. But there's no middle ground. If you're here as a non-Christian, we just have to let you know that there is not just this easy believism. These are earth-shattering perspectives. For our Christian friends, thinking about Christ as king means that Christ cannot just be a cute little addition in your life. I know it's cute to come to church, 
when it's your favorite thing or when it's a certain kind of holidays or when your whole family might be in town. But it's not just about Sundays. It's about all of our life. And Christ has a claim even to our thoughts. Just trying to think about that all week long. Just completely humbled and completely destroyed all week. It's one thing to say, Christ, I have to be obedient to you in my actions. And then you got that Corinthians 10 passage. It says, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ your king. I'm like, every thought has to be captive? What obedience do you demand, Lord? I, I can't trifle with you. I can't just play around. You won't permit it. I have to submit to your lordship in all of my life, even my thought life. So my Christian friend, have you acknowledged the reign of Christ in all of your life? Where do you let sin reign instead of Christ? Do you ask him for kingly gifts, like spiritual growth, life and fruit and conversions of the loud nights to come to him? Or are you asking for a better car, a nicer house, a better job, things that are going to pass away anyways? John Newton wrote this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. His grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Is the king of David a nice addition in your busy life? Second, accept the king. You have to receive him, but you also have to accept him. That means you have to submit in the way in which he's ordering your life. That's a tougher one. I went from my thought life this week to thinking about I have to submit to how God is ordering my life. Some people are really good at being obedient to what he says, but when things come into your life that you don't like, you think, this isn't right. That's not fair. Look at how these circumstances in my life are going. But what does it mean to treat Christ as king in that way? King, you know best. You know best. It doesn't mean you put on a cheery smile and you say, I'm just praising Jesus, everything is fine. I'm sure he knows best in that sense. No. You have to wrestle. You have to struggle. Hear this from Job 28. I'm sorry, Job 23, verses 8 through 10. It's one of the better times where Job is wrestling and he basically says, I don't sense God's presence in my life. I don't understand why God is allowing this to happen. It's filling me with terror. But then this is what he says. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I don't behold him. He turns to the right, but I don't see him. Do you see the despair that Job has? But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. You know what Job's doing there? He's accepting that Christ is king. He's saying, I don't understand what things are going on. It terrifies me. I wrestle. But I know if I respond obediently, I know if I accept what he's giving me, I know if I'm faithful in this fiery furnace, I'll come forth as pure gold. What is pure gold? I'll be humbler. I'll be more sensitive. I'll be more loving. I'll be more compassionate. Friends, how do we submit to this king and our circumstances? They're purifying do you give Jesus the kingship like that? If you're here and you're a non-Christian, have you seen that Christ's trials and God's trials that he sends you is his way of getting you to accept his reign? In Daniel, we meet this king named Nebuchadnezzar. He's probably the most arrogant king, one of the most arrogant kings that we have. And eventually, God humbles him that he has to 
eat grass like a cow. King, and yet he behaves as a cow. And after he is broken and accepting that God is king, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here's Nebuchadnezzar, humbled underneath the mighty hand of God and says, none can say to you, what have you done? Friends, there is no refuge from this king, but there is refuge in this king, a blessed refuge. We're going to stand and sing this gospel into our hearts. Whatever my Lord and King ordains is right. It's a tough song. If you can't sing it, just meditate on the words. Pray for Pastor Pat and I as we try to lead it. Thanks.